0: Let me pray one more time for us as we look at this great and grand book. Lord, we ask for your help again as we study the book of Esther, seeing your providence. We pray that you would make this a true feast for us in your word. Um, Help me to preach to the audience of one, to you, Lord, and to be pleasing in your sight through this message. And would you encourage our hearts greatly. Help us to stand in wonder and worship of you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Robert Evans was a pastor who lived in Australia until his death in 2022. He had a spectacular talent. If Evans fixed his gaze on a collection of particles of any magnitude, then the next time he looked at them, he could instantly tell if one was missing or had been added. One person describing his gift used this illustration. Imagine a pool table with a fistful of salt grains scattered over its surface. These white specks on the felt backdrop represent stars. Now imagine 1,500 more such tables arranged in the world's biggest pool hall, each displaying thousands of salt grains randomly spread over them. After Evans has walked around and inspected each table, you could then sneak one grain of salt off any table and toss it on any other table. Upon his next stroll through the pool hall, Evans would be able to pinpoint exactly which spot the grain used to occupy and where it now resides. I have to have a list to go to the grocery store. I mean... (laughs) Evans explained to one interviewer, I just seem to have a knack for memorizing star fields. I'm not particularly good at other things. I don't remember names well. (laughs) His wife chimed in in an interview and said, or where he puts things, said his wife Elaine. Evans was the one man who could help astronomers spot the appearance of a rare phenomenon in the cosmos, namely supernovae. The only way to identify the pinprick as a supernova is if you know the patch of blackness it occupies well enough to notice a change. In fact, a galaxy of millions of stars might only boast one such supernova in 300 years. No one in history claimed bragging rights for spotting more than one except Evans, Before some stargazing computers took over the job in 2003, only 96 supernova sightings had ever been cataloged. Of those, 36 were thanks to Evans. He once went three years with no sightings of a supernova, and he explained this. He said this statement, there is actually a certain value in not finding anything. It is one of those rare areas where the absence of evidence is evidence. Where the absence of evidence is evidence. And it is that paradoxical saying that provides us a helpful tool for interpreting the book of Esther. The book seems godless. It's a godless book. What do we mean by that? Well, the name of God is never used in the book of Esther. This is one of the unique features about the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned. Also, a number of other things that are distinctive of Israel are not mentioned either. Yet the absence of God's name in the book, in this case, is actually evidence for God's work in the book. The absence of his name is actually evidence for his acting in the book the first suggestion when we see that there's the absence of God's name should be that the writer did this deliberately. This was part of his literary artistry. And so we could say that the absence of God's name is not a problem for this book. It is the method of this book. But what would be the motive behind such a method to not include the name of God? Well, it would be to teach you about the subtle and yet all pervasive truth of providence. Providence. Because that's exactly how providence works. It is subtle. It is often invisible. (laughs) uh, We don't don't see, uh, we see the effects of it. It's not like a miracle. Providence is defined this way. In one systematic theology, God's care for the creation, involving his preserving its existence and meticulously guiding it to his intended ends. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says about the book of Esther in particular and what its goal is for us. He said it is about the ever fascinating providence of a never slumbering God which explains the preservation of his always fragile people. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's begin with the problem of the book. Not the missing name of God, but the plan to annihilate the Jews. That's somewhat relevant today. (laughs) Uh, Look at chapter 3. We'll start in chapter 3. I know that's a little odd. You'll see the method to my madness in a a moment. We'll begin in chapter 3 just to get the tension of the book. This is the issue. Chapter 3, verse 1. Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known To him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus' kingdom is a world kingdom at this point. So this is essentially to eradicate all of the Jews in existence. Haman, one of the high officials of King Ahasuerus, is seeking to, we might say, solve the Jewish problem, as has been said in the past. Haman's decree covers Jews everywhere. Now, notice where Haman finds his descent. The author is intentional to tell us about Haman's background. He is the Haman, the Agagite. And it actually comes up a number of other times in the book as well that the author is highlighting for us that he's an Agagite. And you're like, what is an Agagite? (laughs) Well, it likely comes from the Amalekites that's where he descends from and they attacked israel as they were coming out of uh, egypt in exodus 17 and so god said they're going to be destroyed and so then israel's first king saul was commanded to wipe out the amalekites totally totally annihilate them but he failed to do that he kept alive king agag of the amalekites and he refused to, to kill him. So then Samuel shows up, and there's the sheep you know, that they saved that they weren't supposed to, and you know, they're popping up, you know, and, and uh, hey, you don't seem to have obeyed all the way. And so what does Samuel do? Well, he removes ben, uh, 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 Saul as king, and he hacks Agag to pieces, or he, he says that his kingdom is, is removed. Of course, he reigns for some time longer, but he hacks Agag to pieces. Well, the Amalekites continue to live on, and, uh, and we see that Haman here, many years later, is a descendant. Now, Mordecai refuses to bow to him. And where is Mordecai from? Well, he's a Jew, we you know, but, but where specifically is he from? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, A Benjaminite. Notice how he goes out of his way to kind of give us his background, his genealogy. And he ends in the fact that he's a Benjaminite. Why would that be significant? Well, who was the king who was supposed to kill the Amalekites? Saul. What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. So here you have a Benjaminite, a descendant of Saul, and a descendant of Agag and the Amalekites, Haman, and many years later, Some 550 years later, and there is this battle still raging. This is Jacob and Edom all over again, Israel and Edom. This is even more so the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent battle again, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And the issue is this. It's the danger of the extermination of the people of Israel, the seed of Abraham, and therefore the line of the Messiah. If Satan can destroy Israel... He can destroy the coming of the ultimate Israelite. And so we see this all the time in scripture. Many times this happens. Even in the birth of Christ, you see Herod's attempt to wipe out the children in Bethlehem. This is the satanic plot that keeps on being replayed over and over again in history. This is the big tension in the book of Esther. Satan is at it again in history. And this is all the setup and the tension to see the message of Esther, preservation of God's people through providence. Preservation through providence. He doesn't send hail, a hailstorm down. He doesn't part the Red Sea. No, this is quiet, ordinary, if we might say it like that. Providence to preserve his people. This is helpful for us because this is, this is the way we live, right? Uh, we don't see the parting of the Red Sea. These are unique miracles that God did in history. We see the just, Ordinary, silent providence of God working in our lives, just like the Jews saw here. What we want to do is look at this precious doctrine of providence and see it through the lens of the book of Esther and learn five lessons about the providence of God to provoke your praise. Five lessons about the providence of God to provoke your praise. The first lesson is God's providence is preemptive. God's providence is preemptive. And you see this in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with Cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Meet King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. Xerxes. This is the Xerxes in history who defeated the Spartans at Thermopylae, the 300 Spartans. This is that Xerxes of the Medo Persian kingdom. He is, at this point, the most powerful man alive. His kingdom was vast. And he's having a six month party. That's where we find him. And he's at the culmination of that six month drinking fest. And he's having this final week of revelry. And there's just no restraints whatsoever. Just do whatever you want to do, drink as much as you want. And it's just vast and lavish. And during the party, in the following verses, he invites in his wife, Queen Vashti. And he wants her to wear her crown. And just her crown. And Vashi says, no. It's a word that Xerxes probably was unfamiliar with. And so, the king's rulers saw this refusal may have a trickle-down effect and lead to some feminist uprising, so something had to be done. So look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and in the officials, Not only against the king as Queen Vashti did wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is this seems like quite a minor event in world history. Uh, uh, The queen says no to come into the party to satisfy the lusts of the king. And yet, this event would set off a chain reaction that would lead to, ultimately, the preservation of the Jews. You think, what if she hadn't done that? Well, she would still be queen. Esther would not become queen. All these things would take place differently. After her refusal, the king had to do something to save faith, so he deposes Vashti, and he sought to find a new queen. And he basically starts the first Miss Persia pageant And he just gathers up all of the beautiful uh, virgins in uh, Persia. And he's going to find a wife for himself. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, you see that. And here's where we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. And notice how the author introduces her. Look at verse uh, 7. He was bringing up, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Notice here how Esther is introduced by the author, okay? He introduces her by her Hebrew name, Hadassah. Like this would be like a, who wants to be a millionaire question? You know, what is uh, Queen Esther's Hebrew name, you know, for 500,000? You know, because we're not really familiar with that name. Uh, and she wasn't really known by that name either because her, her reference is to Esther after this, but she's called Hadassah here. The author refers to her that way. It's not likely that she was referring to herself that way. Also notice something else. Mordecai tells her not to reveal that she is a Jew. Now, it's helpful to know what else is happening during this period in Israel's history. Remember, this is the, the exile. They're in, first in Babylon, and then uh, Medo-Persia comes on the scene and does away with Babylon. And so, uh, you have Jews who are in exile. Some have returned already in Ezra chapter 1 to 6. And uh, Esther fits in between—in the, the middle of the book of Ezra. Well, some Jews have returned. Others have decided to stay in their exile— And you have also uh, Daniel and his friends. That's occurring in this same kind of time period as well in Israel's history. Now, when you bring in Daniel and his friends, you start to notice some contrasts between Esther and Mordecai. Because what do we know about Daniel and his friends? Well, they also get Babylonian names, but they refer to themselves as Hebrews. They're happy to maintain that identity. Whereas Esther... Uh, does not want to use her Hebrew name, it seems, that the author is hinting at. Not only that, but what we'll see is that Esther is okay, so is Mordecai, to hide uh, their Jewish identity for convenience sake. And not only that, uh, Esther does some immoral acts. To go in with the king. And if you just follow the text, she's basically going to his harem to uh, spend the night with the king and become one of his concubines or one of his uh, consort of uh, women that he has. And so uh, when you look at the book of Esther, uh, maybe I'm shattering some views of Esther that you have. Esther is not a biblical model for women. Uh, Don't put her up that way. Uh, Neither really is Mordecai. Uh, I, I kind of have a minority view on this, but there's others who I, I would agree as well. I think a lot of people kind of see them as, you know, uh, exemplary for their courage and, and whatnot. And while they are courageous, I think the text seems to be painting a very frank picture of them when you contrast Daniel and his friends that these are Jews who are really not faithful. And when you fit it in with the book uh, that doesn't speak about God, it, it emphasized that point even more. Are they models or are they messed up? I would say they're messed up. (laughs) I would contend they're unspiritual Jews. One writer said this, thus this, this narrative is not of good people doing good things for a good outcome, but of a good God bringing about a good outcome through sinful people. And so it's a contrast that shows Jewish people living in a foreign empire while seeking to maintain their Jewish identity and keep Torah unto death. That's, the, that's what Daniel and his friends are doing. They're trying to keep Torah and keep, uh, be faithful to God, even if it means their death. They're like, okay, we won't do that immoral act. You kill us. Whereas Esther and Mordecai view things a little bit differently. Okay, so even though that's the case, notice the emphasis of the text. Okay, look at verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Look at verse 15. It says, kind of down towards the end of verse 15, Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 17, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So what we're seeing here is she has favor. Now, where does she get this favor from? Well, God. God is giving her favor in the eyes of the king. He is advancing her. He's putting her into this place in his providence. And so she is now the queen, the new queen. You could say it like this. God has moved his queen on the board, just in the place where he wants it, in this game of chess. And now the author has Esther as queen, and so he points the camera now onto Mordecai. And we look at the end of chapter two. Look at verse 19 of chapter two. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made, her known, made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she, brought, uh, she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged, uh, hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time. And he overhears a conversation about an assassination plot against the king, against Xerxes, Ahasuerus. And he reports it. And it leads to the preservation of king Ahasuerus. And so they're like, okay, put it in the records. They write it down and it gets closed and puts away and kind of forgotten. And the author just slips this little story in there and it seems out of place because the author doesn't develop it anymore. And you just go, okay, it's going to be a pebble in your shoe. It's going to come out later in the story. So just hang on to this idea. He's just placing this little breadcrumb there early on for you. Now, here is the method, I think, to the author's strategy, uh, what he's doing. Notice that the problem of the book, which we read in chapter 3, is introduced there. uh, It's not until three chapters in. Yet the first two chapters set up for what God is doing before the problem even arises. Esther being queen and Mordecai foiling the assassination plot are mentioned in chapters 1 and 2. And they happen... uh, he he fronts them there. These facts seem random in the beginning, yet they will be the main factors later in the book. And so it is like God is like the grand master chess player who starts to move his pieces strategically into place before he makes a decisive move later. God puts things in place long before anyone knows they were even needed. He gets Esther as queen. He has Mordecai's action take place and be recorded in the book that's not gonna be picked out for some time later. It's just chronicled for later. What's the point? Well, the point is that something was in place long before it was needed. What we may regard as inconsequential, God may make the centerpiece of his plan long before it is needed. God may be at work in your trouble long before you are in trouble, preemptively working for what he's going to do before you're even aware of it. God does not become aware of your problem the same time you do. God doesn't become aware of anything because he knows all things and he ordains all things. God has been at work in your situation long before you became aware there was even a problem. And so this ought to give us great comfort when the doctor calls, when a relationship sours, when you're faced with that emergency. God's providence is active before you are even aware of it. It is preemptive. God's providence is preemptive. Secondly, we learn that God's providence is compatible with your participation. God's providence is compatible with your participation. In other words, just because God is orchestrating every event, it doesn't mean we go, okay, don't do anything, sit back and watch know right? he welcomes us into participation in his plan. That's what we're gonna see here. Verse one of chapter three into chapter five, verse eight. Three, verse one to five, verse eight. Now, chapter three introduces us to the plan of Haman to annihilate the Jews. We read about that. Mordecai then tells Esther that she needs to do something about this. She's in the place to be able to do something. And so the rest of chapter three, after the part we read in the beginning, tells about how uh, Haman is going to, uh, accomplish this. He's going to do it. Uh, he, he casts poor, which are kind of like dice or lots to to make the decision. And they, they pick the date and what's going to happen. And the news gets out and it spreads. And Mordecai hears about it. He's very concerned. Uh, and, and so he sends word to Esther to say, you're in the position that can do something. You need to talk to the king. So look at verse eight of chapter four. Chapter four, verse eight. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. This is a risky plan and Esther is fearful. Uh, yes, she has become the queen, but she's somewhat on the outs. She hasn't been summoned to the king for 30 days. Maybe he's moving on. We don't know. But she hasn't been summoned in. And, and we learn from her that there is actually a law. Even the queen has to be summoned in to the king. And if you just barge in and the king decides he doesn't want you to be there, off with your head. And so there, this is a risk that... Mordecai wants her to take, nevertheless. And so look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will per- will Perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so he's challenging her and saying, you need to do this. And, and hey, maybe someone else will, but he, he, it's, it's interesting. The author doesn't tell us how he might know this or what, why his inclination is this way. And he just says, you're, you're here. You're, you're in a strategic place right now. You need to take advantage of that. Come what may. Seeking to motivate her. It's probably the most famous verse in the book. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe he speaks better than he knows because God has certainly placed her right there at this time to accomplish his purposes. And what's her response? Well, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And what's interesting is usually fasting is also connected to prayer. This is like fasting and prayer. Here it's not. Here's another indication that the, the godlessness of the book, so to speak. Yes, fasting, but no mention of prayer. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And then, of course, here's what she does. On the third day, chapter five. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, you notice Vashti got deposed because she wouldn't come into the king, right, at the time, he said. And then now it's almost like a little bit of a reminder, but it's kind of opposite. She's coming in and she hasn't been summoned. It's the opposite. So what's going to happen? Verse two, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Providence strikes again. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast in Esther, that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. (laughs) There's a lot of suspense in this story. Um, God is at work. uh, But notice here how he's using human instruments to do his work right? He uses Mordecai to motivate Esther and uses Esther to go into the king and make a request and things are coming together. God may work apart from your efforts, of course he can do that, but he often loves to use your efforts for his purposes. Notice also that those whom God uses in his providence are far from perfect. We've already made this point that they seem to be compromised in some ways we compare them with others at this period. Yet, God makes use of them, nevertheless, to preserve his people. God can and does use dirty instruments in his divine decrees. Sometimes providence comes with fireworks and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God moves his people to act in a spectacular way, like this. I mean, this is very pivotal. This is like high pressure. And sometimes God moves his people to act in a simple way. For Esther here, this is spectacular, how he moved her and how he granted her favor. But is it any less a cause for worship when God moves his people to write a text of encouragement to someone? When he moves them to step out in faith and share the gospel with an unbelieving family or friend? When he moves someone in a simple way to serve another saint in a selfless way? Isn't that the working of God's providence just as much as spectacular ways like Esther, even if they're less dramatic? Here, the point we want to see is that God's providence doesn't wipe out your participation, but welcomes it. God welcomes your participation in his plan. So, God's providence is preemptive. Secondly, God's providence is compatible with your participation. Third, we learn about this precious doctrine that God's providence is precise. God's providence is precise. Chapter five, verse nine to six fourteen. Chapter five, verse nine to six fourteen. You gotta have to do a little work here because they don't connect like chapter breaks, but that's okay. As Esther started her plan regarding the banquet. The um, king accepted her, but Esther did not say what the issue was specifically in the banquet, the first banquet. The king knew the issue was huge. How do you know that? Well, because he knew the law. She barges in. He welcomes her, but he knew what could have happened if, he, if his uh, desires were different at the moment. And so he knows this has got to be something important to her for her to come in like this Unannounced. But in between the two banquets, uh, well, the fact that there's another banquet is just funny because they're in the first banquet, and he's like, what do you want? And she's like, I want another banquet to ask my question then. And you're thinking, what? And then you kind of think, this is so strange. For whatever reason, this is her desire to have another banquet. We're not told really why. But in between the two banquets, there's a new problem. One person says, a fresh emergency arises. And here's the issue. It's the issue of Mordecai. Look at verse nine of chapter five. First banquet is ended. Mordecai goes home. Verse nine. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when, you think, why is that? Well, Haman got invited to this party with Esther and the king. And she's got a big request. You're thinking, he's thinking, oh, man. This is cool. I was in that party. I'm getting invited to the next one. Okay. Maybe a promotion. So he's all excited. He's leaving. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Ah, the fly in the ointment. Mordecai. Just, ah, just ruined my day. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He's like, I got invited to the party. This is great. My career is just like skyrocketing. This is great. Verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. That's like really tall. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So Mordecai, Haman leaves. He goes, talks to his family. He's all excited. His wife gives a suggestion on how to handle Mordecai. No big deal. Just construct the gallows. You're going your way up. You can do anything you want. So he gets, gets hires a contractor. They start building. You see what's happening here? This is a subplot. This is a subplot in the book of Esther. One person said it like this. It's not just the fate of the Jews, but also now the fate of a Jew What's going to happen to Mordecai? And in order to really feel the tension of this, you have to see the timing, appreciate the timing. See, this plot precedes the second banquet, which likely means neither Esther nor Mordecai are aware of what Haman is hatching. And so the question becomes, well, Esther's going to plead for the Jews. Who's going to plead for Mordecai? And so th- there's a problem that the characters don't seem to even know about. But thankfully, God is not limited by our unavailability or us being unaware. There's no Esther here to help, but God doesn't always need our assistance. Isn't that encouraging? There are some problems in your life you don't even know about. Things that are, you know, potentially being worked out against you. And yet, you don't know. So just go sleep at night, you know. And here's a situation they probably don't know about. And it is significant. God can work through human instrumentality as he does, chapter four, verse 14, or he can do it by himself, by keeping the king awake at night. He doesn't always have to do something the same way. And this is what makes God so fascinating. He's not just like, burp, burp, press the same button over and over again. Burp, 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 you know? He's got multiple buttons. One person said God's providence is kaleidoscopic. You, know, you take that kaleidoscope and you turn it and it's like, oh, these things. He has lots of tools in his toolbox, to fix what seemed to be problems to us. For the Jews, he uses human instruments. For a Jew, he works by himself through insomnia. Look at chapter six, verse one. On that night, notice we're talking about precision here. Precision is the word. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? King's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. It just so happened, (laughs) love to say that statement, it just so happened that he couldn't sleep for whatever reason. It just so happened that he asked for that book to be brought. You know, like, what do you do when you can't sleep? You know, we have Instagram, we got, you know, your little games, whatever you can play, you can watch Netflix, I don't know. He didn't have any of those things. He didn't have a cell phone. It also was that it just so happened that they brought out this book and they read this part, right? Reminds me of a time I, I went into a, I was actually telling Caleb about this yesterday. Uh, I went into a thrift store in Adel and Ashley was looking around. She wanted to look at some stuff and I was just kind of walking around aimlessly and I go to a, I go to a, uh, I go to a the, the books section, the paperbacks, and uh, and, I, and I'm just like, okay, whatever, and I'm like looking at the paperbacks, and there's one on Guinness Book of World Records, and there was like four or five of them, and I just grab a random one, I pull it off, and uh, and I literally just open to the first page, kind of in the middle, and there's a picture of J.D. Drew <laughs> from <laughs> from college, uh, college record, and uh, he's not here so I can tell his story, but, um, and I just saw it, what in the world? And uh, so I bought it and gave it to him for Christmas or something a couple of years ago. And uh, I just thought, what, how in the, what are the chances of just random, and there it is. And uh, so that's the experience here of uh, the king. He just says, yeah, just get that book out and open it up. And wouldn't you know, it's about Mordecai. On that night, just the precision, the precision of all of this. And it just so happened he thought, oh, we should do something for this guy. Has anything been done? And it just so happened that at the very moment this is all happening, Haman is plotting and the hammers are hard at work building the gallows. How precise God can be in His timing. And there's humor here. I mean, as a reader, you are omniscient. You know what is happening with the plot with Haman. And you know, uh, oh, you know what Haman doesn't know and you know what the king doesn't know. And so, it's just so amusing. So, look at verse 4. And the king said, who is in the court? I mean, he wants to make something happen right now. All right, everyone's gone. Uh, It's the night. Who, Who we got here? Who can do something about this? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about making, about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So notice, here's why this is the tension. Because he was going to have Haman, he was going to have Mordecai killed before they even had the next banquet. So they don't know about this. And here's how God's like, oh, I can handle that. No big deal. He's walking in. He just heard this book read, and he knows the name of Mordecai. Verse 5, and the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Perfect. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Straight's tie. (sighs) Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, he doesn't say this out loud, he's thinking this in his head. I mean, this is just so great. He thinks he's got it coming. And he gets a little over the top here in his suggestion. Here's his moment. He's thought about this. He's daydreamed about this. He's journaled about this. Your diary, you know. <laughs> Verse 7, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead out, lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Anything else? (laughs) And he just, he just goes for it. And then we read verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said. He's like, oh. <laughs> And do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. And by the way, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. I love all your ideas. These are great. <laughs> so Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. I mean, and I don't want to just be there. How did he say this? I mean, he can't be like, oh, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights. No, he's got to say it. He's got he's to believe it, right? Thus shall it be done to the man who, and he's like trying not to cry as he says this, king delights to honor. And he's just got to keep saying it over and over again. And he walked right into it. And if you're an Israelite hearing this, you're just on the ground laughing. And the timing of all this is just perfect. It, here's what the author wants you to think. Isn't this God fascinating and delightful? I mean, he wants you to laugh. He wants you to go, oh, God is so great. Yeah. He wants you to love this God who is precise in his providence. What ease he turns his enemies' plans around. Done. You and I may stress and worry about timing and circumstances, yet God is meticulous in his precision He's working to remedy things in your life that you're not even aware of. I just sometimes wonder, and I give thanks, but God, what has happened in my life I didn't even know about? Like ways I could have died, ways that my life could have been ruined or whatever, and I still don't even know about them. You just did something. I don't know. Those are the things that we just will never know about until maybe heaven. And God was working. We just don't even know all that he's doing. The precision of God's providence is praiseworthy. it just just delight us. Oh, God, this is so great. And that's what it's meant to do. And so it's precise. You see also, four, God's providence is preserving. God's providence is preserving. You see this in really the end of chapter six. Um, we'll pick it up. And then through nine, chapter 19, I guess you give me one, the beginning of seven to the middle of chapter nine. We look here at the end of chapter six and verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. So after this, he, he goes home real quick. Haman told his wife Jeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And so it's almost like, you can imagine this, he runs in the door and he's huffing and puffing and she's like, what's, what's wrong? He's like, pack a bag, grab the passports. We gotta leave now. <laughs> and they gotta get out of town. I mean, he's a dead man. Uh, so he's, they've gotta leave. Then his wise men and his wife Jerash said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so they're ready, they're going, they're about to go out the door. And as they open the door, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. All right, professors said that the, the eunuchs in the story are kind of like the oompa-loompas. You know, they, they move the story along, kind of just, okay, now it's time to move to the next thing. It's like, umpa, loompa doompa dee <laughs> Haman's gonna die, and so are you. <laughs> but uh, so he basically, he's like ready to go, and then all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock. Hey, you got to come with us. And he's like, ah, timing. This is terrible. So then we move in and the next banquet takes place. He's brought to the banquet. Hey, it's time to party, Haman. Aren't you ready? And so we pick it up in chapter 7 verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, As they were drinking wine, after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, "'Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this?' And Esther said, "'A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman.' And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for she saw that harm was determined against him by the king.' And the king returned from the palace garden to the, pla- to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And I just, I just think about this in movie ways. You know, he, uh, and just the timing is so great again. I mean, it's just like, His actions are interpreted wrongly. He's trying to beg um, Esther to plead for him. And the king walks right back in after kind of sobering up. And now he's like, what are you doing? You know, and he's interpreting it wrongly. And so you just see the the guards come in and they just, the black cloak over his head. And he's gone. Like in the movies you see, kidnapped. And so he's done for. And so they put it over his face, verse nine. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, you gotta love this, timing, timing, timing. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. Fifty cubits high. He's like, hey, uh, Haman, uh, your order's done. And he's like, no, stop, 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 stop. You know, get out of here. No, no, no. And, and so he shows up and he's like, hey, uh, this is done. What do you want us to do with this thing? And it's perfect timing. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated You've got to love this, the timing of all this. And, and there's a theme that keeps coming up. They've found favor in your sight, O king, chapter 7, verse 3. comes up again in chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 13. If it pleased the king, the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, the fear of them had fallen on the peoples. God is at work in the heart of the king and the hearts of the peoples to preserve his people, giving them favor and putting fear in the hearts of people. And consider that God's providence impacts not only nations, but also individuals. Book of Esther is about the preservation of the Jews and one particular Jew. This is how God preserves you if you are his child. He does it through his often silent and yet precise providence. How are God's people ultimately preserved from his wrath? From judgment? By the hanging of another Jew on a cross. But the preserving work of the Jews here allows for that preserving work of the propitiatory work of that Jew, Jesus Christ. His work would not only deliver the Jews, but also all the nations who look to him. And so we see the preservation through providence. And that bears itself out in the people being able to have this decree and they're able to fight and defend themselves and they, they win this great victory and they are preserved. And the last thing we want to see as we wrap up is God's providence is praiseworthy. God's providence is praiseworthy. Go to chapter nine, verse 20. What we see as I summarize this, chapter nine, 20 verses, to chapter 10, verse three, um, after they have defeated them, they make a holiday. They make a holiday named Purim. Purim. And it's based off of the word poor. poor. Not P-O-O-R, but P-U-R. Poor are lots. right? Lots are kind of like dice that you roll. And you remember, how was it that Haman had decided when to destroy the Jews? When that would happen? Through casting poor, casting dice. In chapter 3, verse 7, he used poor to devise his plan. And then in chapter 9, verse 24, it says, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that the evil plan which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the term poor. And basically they take what was used to devise this plan against them as the very thing that they used to celebrate God's deliverance. It's the ultimate turnaround. Haman didn't account for the fact that Yahweh controls the lot. Proverbs 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. God's providence is meticulous, down to the casting of dice. Nothing is random, all is governed by the providence of God. And so what did the people do? Well, like we said, they took what was used to plot against them and turned it into the celebration of God's providence. It's what we call a redemptive reversal. A redemptive reversal. We should do the same in our lives as well as we consider the outworking of God's providence. Rejoice, give thanks, praise God for how He has worked. The providence of God is not boring; it is profound and therefore praiseworthy. One writer said, "It is not this, this story is not just descriptive; it is meant to be doxological." The author does not just want you to make observations of the text, but to have adoration for this God, to worship this God. You don't just study the doctrine of providence to to know what it is, but to worship the God who rules through providence. And it's by this providence that he brought about the ultimate redemptive reversal at the cross of Christ, where he, through his providence, orchestrated all the events to provide redemption for those who would believe in Christ and trust in him. If you're wondering what you're supposed to do with the book of Esther, the answer is wonder and worship. Like there's no, com- no commands here for what you should do, but there is the evident reminder of how great God is. It's, it's to stir you up to worship this God, to stand in awe of him. Reminds you of Ralph Davis, what he said here. He says, the purpose of Esther is not to get you to do something, but to realize something. The ever fascinating providence of a never-slumbering slumbering God explains the preservation of his always-fragile people. God preserves his people through providence by protecting the line of the Messiah and also pr- by promoting our perseverance. Just like the book of Esther, when we look at our world, it can seem as though God is absent from it. Yet when we view life through the lens of providence, we can see his fingerprints everywhere. Close with an excerpt from an article written by Clint Archer, he says this, quote, In the chess world, it became known as the game of the century. On October 17, 1956, the grandmaster, Donald Byrne, was playing a highly publicized match against a 13-year-old boy named Bobby Fischer. Fischer had already been called a chess prodigy, but no one knew he would go on to be regarded as the greatest chess player of all time. But the epic match against Byrne was a sign of wonders to come the shock of the upset was amplified by the way the game began. Young Bobby Fischer seemed to make a series of clumsy mistakes early on. He lost his knight in the 11th move, forfeited dominance of the center, put his pieces in harm's way. And in move 17, Fischer opted to sacrifice his queen. By any standards, this was considered a disastrous foible, an irrevocable mistake but it was that unexpected move that made the game so famous. It was all part of Fisher's master plan. In fact, experts can now analyze the game and see that every single piece had been moved into perfect position and at the right time in the game. And all his choices were components of an intricate and complicated plot that would lead to a forced checkmate and a stunning victory. The beauty and art of the strategy could only be appreciated after the whole game was played. No one ever smirked at the boy's mistakes. Fisher's style was no longer dismissed as unconventional. It was hailed as ingenious, end quote. And one day, one day, God's plans will not be questioned, but will also be hailed as ingenious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your ingenious plan that we've only seen some of in history up to this point and what your word has revealed to us. And so we long to see the conclusion of it in history as Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, the eternal state, and we trust you now, Lord. We thank you for a book like this that, that just reminds us of how you are at work to give us hope in our world. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.